um, this morning is, um, you know, when we think of reading, reading scripture, it uh, is, a, is a difficult thing at times. I think maybe we feel as if um, it is, um, we don't want to, it would be unspiritual to say that, you know, it is hard to read the Bible sometimes in terms of practicality and just in terms of like trying to understand what scripture says. And um, one of the things I think is helpful for us in reading scripture and in reading scripture well is um, to look at the different genres of the Bible. So what I'd look, like to look at this, this morning is just give a, a quick overview of some of the main genres that are used in scripture to help us to better understand what scripture says and in order to be better readers um, and interpreters and um, people who follow what the word says. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, in terms of studying the Bible as a whole, there are um, a variety of different uh, approaches, things that we need to attend to in reading Scripture. And they all end the word context, which is probably too much context on this page. Um, so there are many things to pay attention to in Scripture. Um, but we're going to look primarily here in the literary context of how the actual text is written and communicated and thinking about the genre of the Bible. And so when we think of the various genres, it's helpful for us to first look at this screen grab right here. Thank you for not judging me. Does anyone know what this is what this is from? Yes, very good. Yeah, all right. Greg, bonus points. Which Star Wars is it? You got it. All right. Yeah, this is from the openings. There you go. That's awesome. <laughs> so, all right. So, this is Star Wars. We know it's Star Wars, right? But if we just take, take a moment and think about, all right, what type of genre is this? If, if, we, if this is the first time you've ever seen Star Wars in Long Beach, California, and you're not, you don't even know the title of it, this is, you walked in two minutes late, you missed the, the thing where it goes Star Wars, and it gives you the text crawl, and this is the first thing that you saw, what genre are we looking at here? Alright, sci-fi. Why is it sci-fi? It's in, it's in outer space, right? But why is it, like, why is it not, like, a romantic comedy. <laughs> yep, I'm feeling the love here. Yep, yep. Uh, but why? Why it's in space? What about this makes this fiction though? Because it could be like Apollo 13, which is in space but is not science fiction. It's not real. Like we don't have spaceships that are like this. Uh, we don't, you know, like the planets that are there are not real. So it's not real. So this is giving us certain clues and expectations of what sort of uh, experience, what sort of film we're about to watch. So for Kelly, when she watches, when she sees this, her certain expectation is she's going to get a great nap out of this. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there are a variety of uh, different genres, and, and we are... Uh, I think, well-attuned a lot of times to picking out what sort of genre we are watching or even when we are reading. And that's going to set up 
uh, certain expectations that we have. Uh, just another one, you see this one is a, a different um, genre. This is a screen grab from Saving Private Ryan, which you know tells us that this is not science fiction. This is historical fiction probably because like it's real events this is d-day and they the you know the creators of this have tried to do a good job of recreating the event as realistically as possible but like tom hanks's character is not a real individual and one of the ways that we know that this is not like a true story is that you don't have in the beginning it says based on a true story or anything like that so it's historical but it's not true. So it's, it's historical fiction. So anyways, we, we pick up on these certain clues uh, when we are using, when we're watching a film, reading a book, and they give us the certain, what sort of expectations we should have when we're looking at something. So this is the role that genre has. And it's important for us to note that when we're reading scripture, there are a variety of genres. I think we read the Bible quite flatly. We read it all as if it's the same thing, and we have the same sort of expectation for every part of Scripture, then um, we're going to have some some hiccups in the way that we read Scripture. So genre acts like a contract between the author and the reader. Here are like the basic rules that I'm going to follow, the basic sort of uh, format, uh, the type of language I'm going to use in this specific uh, in this specific communication, in this text. And this, again, shapes the expectations for how we are to read. So if we're going to read something that is in poetry, we're going to be expecting a lot of figurative language. As opposed to narrative, you will probably get less figurative language. It shapes the sort of expectations that we have. And it's also important for us to note and to remember that we want to understand their genres versus our own genres. Uh, a lot of these, like we have poetry in English, we have history, we have, um, we have letters, but the way that we do our poetry or our letters uh, is different, um, has some similarities, but is different than how they might do their letters or do their poetry. So if we apply our sort of rules and our sort of expectations of what I want history to look like or what I want poetry to look like, we're going to be kind of disappointed or confused or even misinterpret a passage. So we want to look at what are their rules, what are their genres. Now, these are the, we're going to look at six basic biblical genres. There's a few others. This is not exhaustive, but I think these are the ones that we encounter the most, uh, and so I thought it would be worth looking at these specific ones this morning. So we'll begin first with poetry. I like poetry. I don't know anything about poetry, which should give you lots of confidence for about everything that we're about to say. Um, but in English, in English, uh, when I think of poetry in JC's kind of like very uneducated mindset of English poetry, I think of it has to rhyme, right? You think, I mean, that's what I think anyways. Uh, but in, in, Biblical poetry, and specifically in the Old Testament, it has nothing to do with rhyming. So when we're looking at poetry, and we're going to look more so at the Psalms, there's lots and lots of poetry throughout the Old Testament. Something like a third of the Old Testament is poetry, is in poetic form. Um, and so we'll see this later, that this is not just the, the, the Psalms. You have some of this in, in Proverbs. You have this 
in uh, the prophets. The prophets are mostly uh, in poetic form. And so the thing that um, the Old Testament uses in Hebrew poetry is parallelism, not uh, rhyming, but in parallelism. I feel like you get a gold star if you can say that five times in a row real fast. So parallelism is when you have two lines, right? Two lines, and these are in parallel with one another. This is really deep stuff. Yeah, so notice how I've got the the two lines here. So you've got one line that will describe something that will make it a statement or something, and then a second line that almost sounds the same. We'll see this, uh, we'll see some examples of this in just a moment. But it almost sounds as if it's repeating itself. And we go, man, these um, biblical authors um, are kind of like idiots because they just repeat themselves over and over and over again. And that's really not what they're doing because they'll give, you'll have that first line and then that second line not just repeats it, but it will advance it in some way. I have an example on the next slide here. But that's the basic idea of parallelism. So when we're looking at psalms, when we're looking at other poetry forms, pay attention to where are your, your, your parallel lines. So two basic types of parallelism. The first one is synonymous, and the second one is antithetical. Synonymous. So this is the one that we see probably the most. And this is where, again, you're saying the same thing, but then that second line is advancing it. So here is Psalm 61.1. And I've taken this one verse. There you go. Can you see the cursor? Yes. As Greg says, the cursed cursor. Uh, So here I've taken Psalm 61.1 and broken it up into its two lines. So hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. Now to us, it sounds like He's just repeating himself. He's saying the same thing twice. But notice of how in these two lines, so we have line one, line two, the second line takes the same idea of the first line and then moves it even forward. So the first thing that David says in this psalm is he is crying out to the Lord. He's weeping. uh, He's very emotional before the Lord. But then the second move that he makes that is similar to that, but it moves it forward, is that his crying, his weeping, transitions out of just simple weeping into prayer. So he's not just saying the same thing, he's moving it forward. Does that make sense? Okay, so when we are reading the Psalms and reading poetry, you want to pay attention to where is line one, where is line two? How does that second line move the thought forward? That's the general idea with uh, parallelism. Now, this is synonymous when they are saying the same thing, but advancing. Now, here, antithetical is where you're saying the same thing, but in an opposite way. So here we have, again, another familiar verse, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's line one. And then similar thought, but in an opposite way. And do not lean on your own understanding. So the idea here is that we are to trust the Lord. And it's easy for us to almost say like, yes, I am trusting the Lord with all of my heart. I am doing that. But then he gives us this opposite statement to remind us like, don't trust in yourself. If you're saying like, I'm trusting the Lord, but I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to take care of this. You're not actually trusting the Lord. So it advanced the line of like reminded us like, you need to not, it's not, yourself it needs to be fully and completely in the lord so uh, uh, both are saying like trust in the lord but the second one advances it by showing us the opposite 
side. So two types of parallelism. Now, when we're looking at the book of Psalms, specifically, there are three basic types of psalms. Um, there are, you have praise psalms, you have thanksgiving psalms, and you have lament psalms. Praise and thanksgiving almost seem very similar to one another, at least in my mind. Um, but praise has to do more with the character of God. Who is the Lord? And as I think about who the Lord is, I'm going to give him the praise that is that he is uh, due. Thanksgiving is more specific. He did something. He saved me. He provided me something. So I'm going to thank him for what he did. And then lament psalms um, are when you're crying out to the Lord during times of trouble. And so these are the, the three basic, based on their structure and their format, um, of their psalms. And, I, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I think this is just so interesting and fascinating about the book of Psalms is that s- over 60 of the book of Psalms, uh, 60 of the individual psalms are lament psalms. So more than, like, the, it's the majority of the Psalter are lament psalms, which I think is just s- super amazing and powerful of the Lord is concerned with our troubles. He is concerned with us crying out to him and teaching us how to cry out to him. And all of these, these three, are to give us that vocabulary, that language, to know how to communicate to the Lord. Now, there are other psalms um, that are there as well, such as like wisdom psalms, royal psalms, songs of ascent. We read Psalm 124 this morning, which is a psalm of ascent. Um, And there's other ones as well. Um, But those are more based on the content within them of the information that is being communicated, whereas these first three, praise, thanksgiving, and lament, are more based on their typical format or structure. Does that make sense? Okay, so content or structure, and uh, each of these uh, structural uh, psalms, praise, thanksgiving, lament, they each have their own sort of basic structure, and so they they typically will follow those formats. So, if you can like figure out where the format is or what even what type of psalm that you can that you are reading can help lead you to your certain expectations. So usually this is kind of JC's dumb way of thinking. When you're reading a psalm, it's usually going to start with the type of language here. So if it says, "I praise you, Lord," what what type of psalm do you think it's going to be? Probably a praise psalm. And then if it has lots of words of like thanksgiving, then it's probably a thanksgiving psalm. And if there's lots of like emotional elements of like crying out to the Lord or something like that, then it is probably a lament psalm. So I don't know. To me, when, you know, um, in in reading the psalms, everyone loves the psalms and how um, emotive they are and how um, personal they are. But I think... You know, we, we just kind of read them all as the same. And picking up on all right, what type of psalm am I even dealing with um, can go a long, long way to understanding it better. Uh, especially like when we talk about the royal psalms and how this will speak of David and his, and his descendants, of him being the king, and then how this would speak um, typologically, speaking of Christ uh, later in the New Testament. So three types of psalms. Now one of the other things that's important as we think of the book of Psalms, is uh, figures of speech. How do we understand figures of speech? 
And figures of speech are like vivid ways of expressing something, right? Like you could say, um, uh, I had a great weekend, or you could say, I had a ball. Like, and maybe that's not the greatest figure of speech. Uh, but you can just, like, we use, like, uh, hy- uh, hyperbole, we use metaphors um, to help bring clarity to an idea and to help uh, bring vividness and uh, more um, communicative power to saying that to something that we're trying to say. And what's interesting is, like, in poetry, it's very picturesque. They're, like, painting with words. And so they're trying to describe uh, an, a god who is, like, you can't see him, you can't touch him. It's difficult to describe exactly who he is. So we have to use things in reality that we are familiar with to help us understand who God is. So um, I like that. Uh, line in Psalm 18, um, where it says you have a variety of uh, figures of speech in describing the Lord. Um, the, verse 2, I love, uh, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, David could just have just said like, the Lord, I find protection in the Lord. But he doesn't, he doesn't just say that. He, he, he thinks of all these different elements in the world to help him capture this idea of how the Lord protects him, of how the Lord uh, ministers to him. So he uses like a rock. So um, when we're thinking of figures of speech, it's easy for us to think to just blow past it. But the point of a figure of speech is for us to slow down and think about how um, that... Uh, idea speaks of that thing or of God. Um, And it's also, we have to think of their environment. What would this have meant to them in their own historical cultural context? Um, So when we're thinking of figures of speech, there's really three elements that we need to pay attention to. The image, the non-image, and then the point of contact. So if we look at this passage here, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. So here we have three uh, metaphors of describing the Lord. Rock, fortress, deliverer. The rock, fortress, and deliverer, that's the image, the figure of speech, the thing that God is being compared to. Then the non-image is the Lord, the thing that we are comparing these things to. And now we have to think about, all right, what is the point of contact? What's the thing that we're supposed to think about in relationship with God and him being a rock? Well, he's big, he's brown, he's rough, and not warm. No, like that's not the point that you're supposed to get about who the Lord is. Like the, the, like the Lord, or um, when Jesus says, I am the door. Oh, Jesus is flat on both sides and kind of creaky. No, you've, you've misunderstood the figure of speech. Um, so we have to think of what is the point of contact? What is the idea that he's trying to convey between that? So when he says, the Lord is my rock, he's thinking of this place that would provide shelter. You have to think of in their environment. Uh, if he's in the middle of the desert, he's, he's fleeing from Saul. Uh, a rock is a, is a place where he can find shelter from the sun, from the oppressive sun. Uh, it can be shade. Um, it can uh, provide a place of hiding, etc. 
So in that way, he's thinking of the Lord. When, he says, when Jesus says, I am the door, um, he's speaking that he is the entrance point into God. He's the way that we can go to God. So we want to think of, all right, when we come to a figure of speech like one of these, and this is not only for the Psalms and only for poetry, but you get a higher percentage of figures of speech in the, in the Psalms. But when we come to it, don't just blow pie. The point is like, slow down. Think and meditate on the comparison that's trying to be made here. So, figures of speech. So that's a little bit about poetry. Let's talk about narrative now. Story. Now, when we think of biblical narratives, I think, you know, we all love a story. And the, uh, the Bible is filled with story. But I think a lot of times we think, again, of the stories of Scripture in uh, kind of a just flat, flat way. And we, as people who, who love the Word and uh, believe in the Bible, and we see that it's, it's telling us, it's giving us history, we want to understand the history that is in Scripture. And that is good, but that's not all that Scripture is giving us. We are given theological history. Um, and so what the stories that we have in Scripture are, uh, when it is actually hi- historical, um, it is not just giving us only historical information. It's teaching us about who God is. It's teaching us about his actions, his attitudes. Uh, it's teaching us about how Israel, about Israel's failure uh, to walk with him. And uh, so it's giving us theological history. And part of this is um, both that this is interpreted, um, is that we are getting God's perspective on these events. You're not getting all the details. That's, that's another aspect here, is that there is a selection of material. This is true in any form of, of history telling, but it's a, it's a helpful reminder when we're reading the biblical record, we're getting a, just a thin sliver of what actually happened. And that the Lord has led the human authors to provide only certain details for the story purposes and to communicate the theological truth that the author and that the Lord wants them to communicate. So there's a selectivity, and this is, there is an interpretation from God about these events. So, for instance, if you were to look at um, Ahab or Ahab's dad, Omri, Omri, from uh, a uh, historical perspective, is like a fantastic king. King of Israel, remember Ahab in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 18, really bad king, and, his, and the Bible talks very briefly about Omri. Um, in that um, he is a bad king, doesn't follow the Lord, and he's just like, you get a couple verses about um, uh, Omri. But Omri is like a major player in, in the ancient Near East. Like, if you're writing just history, you need to talk a lot about him and all of his great accomplishments that he has. But what the biblical uh, narrator in Kings does is that, like, totally doesn't deal with him and deals with Ahab, who's kind of like a nothing in the political world. But he deals with Ahab because of Ahab's theological failures, his turn towards Baal uh, and away from the Lord. And so here from God's perspective, like from humans' perspective, both of these individuals' lives look really prosperous, look really great and wonderful, 
But from God's perspective, the way that he interprets their life is that they abandon the Lord. So you're getting his interpretation of their lives, and he selects a certain amount of information to drive that story forward. Another aspect that when we are reading the narrative is um, how do we apply and should we apply these narratives? And this is like really, really um, tricky. In some passages, it seems more clear for us. In other passages, like, ooh, that's a lot harder. So is, is this story uh, describing something as that's just what happened? Or is it prescriptive? It's telling us this is how we should live as well. Um, for some passages, it seems more clear. So when David takes multiple wives, and David is a, is a polygamist, um, which is kind of weird to, to think about, is this something that is descriptive or prescriptive? This is just describing what David did or telling us this is how we should live. Now, I think our internal thing is like, well, of course it's descriptive. Yes, and I would agree with you. Yeah, it's, it is descriptive. Uh, it's just telling us what David did. It's not telling us that uh, we should have uh, multiple partners in, or multiple husbands or wives, um, and, and that, like, that's not what he's saying. But when we come to other passages like the book of Acts, and it talks about um, the apostles performing miracles or speaking in tongues, then it becomes a little bit more challenging. Like, is this something that is just describing that they did these miracles, that they spoke in tongues, or is this something that should that we should do as well? Now, I think that's probably more descriptive for us personally, but then there are other ones as well of um, the actions of the disciples. You know, what are they acting in a way that we should follow or that we should not follow? So, thinking of that question: Is this this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Now, when we're paying attention to narrative and to stories. It's helpful for us to follow the plot of the story, right? Again, like we, I think, I don't know, maybe you don't have this problem. Maybe I'm just recovering from this problem that I've self-inflicted on myself. Uh, is, is that like, we just read it as like, oh, okay, that's what happened. That's what he said. Okay, great. Like the biblical authors are brilliant authors. And so they are weaving information and they are telling the story in a certain order with certain emphases. Uh, to to get to, to tell the story and to give certain emphases, so uh, it's important for us to pay attention to the plot of the story. So, for instance, you have kind of a um, well. I love the Gospel of Mark. Um, I've I've talked a lot about Mark, so can you put up with it for just another minute about Mark? So, like Mark is incredibly selective in his, the way that he tells his story, the way that he presents his information, and the way that he presents various events, like he, his order of events are different than the other Gospels at times. And the sort of themes and elements that he includes um, do this as well. So you want to chart what the sort of plot is. Like Mark, the way that he starts it is, just Jesus starting his ministry. That's where it starts. Well, it starts with John the Baptist, and then Jesus started his ministry. There is no birth narrative. There is no his, of his early life. It's just right when he starts. And he presents him, Jesus is the Son of God. So this becomes one of his main themes that he has throughout the story. And he creates various scenes in his story that present Jesus as the Son of God. So the way that he's crafting the plot is to give us this theme about Jesus being the Son of God. So, and also, um, 
going to come back to these. There it is. There's the fourth one that I wanted, themes. This connection of themes and plot. Also going with characterization of how a character in the story is being presented. Like Mark, when he tells the story of the disciples, they do everything wrong. Like they follow Jesus and Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ and that's about all they do right. The other Gospels, more nuanced, they do some things right, they do some things wrong. Mark is like almost always negative. And that's his presentation of the disciples, how he characterizes them to present them as a negative example of discipleship. Don't look to the disciples of how to be a disciple of Jesus. Look to these other individuals that pop up into the story and look to the true disciple, Jesus. Also paying attention to the setting of a narrative. Um, thinking of like in 1 Kings 18, yeah, 1 Kings 18 when, um, um, what's his name? Elijah is uh, having this conflict between um, the 450 prophets of Baal. Where are they? Now on this mountain, Mount Carmel. Why is that an interesting feature? Well, this is the great, this is the place where they could meet. They needed a place large enough that everyone can show up. Um, that, that he's playing on like Baal's home turf. And so like that spot is specifically chosen to give every advantage to the prophets of Baal and yet they get nothing. And, that, and that's the way that like the narrator makes some side comments in there is that after all of the excitement, the calling out of the 450 prophets of Baal, the narrator, uh, the author of First Kings says like, and no one listened and no one was concerned. Like, that is just like the narrator just going like, ha, ah, sticking the knife into him. It's like, he, nothing happened. And then in um, Elijah playing on Baal's home turf, the Lord answers without trying to cajole his attention or anything like that. So paying attention to the setting of a scene. And then also themes, connecting this back with, with the plot of how this is, how uh, an author can craft this. And uh, in Mark, coming back to Mark, Mark wants to emphasize Jesus is the Son of God. And so only the Father, well, I'll phrase it this way, no human, I think I've said this before, no human ever confesses Jesus as the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark. Isn't that interesting? Matthew does. Like in Matthew, everybody says that Jesus is the Son of God. But in Mark, no one does. The Father does. The demons do. But no human does until the end of Jesus' life. Right when he dies, the Roman centurion, seeing in the way that Jesus died, he says, truly this man was the Son of God. And the way that Mark has, I think, creatively and brilliantly crafted this story and the way he's given us the plot, the characterization and describing these themes is he's not included people saying Jesus is the Son of God so that when it comes to this Roman centurion, it hits way harder. Like, oh, this Roman centurion this Gentile, this uh, uh, agent of Rome uh, who they thought the true son of God was Caesar, he confesses Jesus as the son of God. And why does he do that? Because he sees the way in which Jesus dies. So it's like this massive story form of just like hitting it on the head of who Jesus is. So that's part of the way that these biblical authors will creatively and ingeniously uh, shape their story. Now, Talked about the Gospels a little bit already. 
and um, thinking of the Gospels, there's kind of four major elements to the Gospel. They're historical, and I think we all go with each of these, but all of these three, uh, these four things work together. They're historical documents, they're narratival, that narratival is a real word, theological, and then they are also virtue-forming. Like the purpose of the Gospels is to form us to be disciples of Christ, um, to follow Jesus, thinking of what are the ethical implications of following Jesus. Now, um, the Gospels are ancient biographies, the specific type of genre that existed during the time that the, that the Gospels were written uh, in this kind of first um, first century BCE to first century CE was where it has its height. And this is the point I really kind of want to hit home, is that the Gospels are a historical genre, but it is, his, it is history told in ancient terms. So the way that we might tell history is different than how they might tell history. And this is true for the Gospels, and this is true for other forms as well. Um, and so, like, when we write history in, in a modern kind of way, um, we have to include lots of details. Like I read the, the biography of Harry Truman by Dave McCullough a number of years ago. I listened to the audiobook because there's no way I was going to read that whole thing. It's like this thick. It's like ridiculously big. And um, like I was interested in Harry S. Truman because of his time as president during the, uh, the end of World War II and then the start of the Cold War. I thought that was kind of interesting and fast that I would be interested in. He spent like 75 pages talking about his grandparents. And I was like, Mr. McCullough, I really appreciate you as an author. You're a very good author. I don't care about his grandparents and then his parents and their move to Missouri. Like, get on to the good stuff. I want the political and military intrigue. That's what I'm here for. Can we, can we get a move on already? But in like modern historical terms, you have to deal with all of that information. You have to lump all that in to get into all of like the psychological background of someone. Ancient biographies don't do that. They're not interested in that at all. So Mark, the very first uh, gospel, the very first ancient biography of Christ, doesn't deal with Jesus' birth at all. He's not interested in it. He gets right into it. He's not going to go and psychologize. Uh, Think about how Jesus thinks about everything. Um, he, he's concerned about Jesus' actions. So we have to think about what are their rules for telling a story versus our own. And even, like, there's a much more flexibility in ancient history writing and in the Gospels. That there's allowance to move different scenes, events, saints into different other scenes. Uh, and there doesn't need to be a strong chronology of each uh, and every event. Um, also, when we're paying attention to the Gospels, we want to think of the story of Israel and the connection to the Old Testament, which is a very, very, very strong connection as well. Okay, N- another thing that we need to pay attention to as we are reading the Gospels is um, reading the Gospels because we have four of them. And so there's two ways that we can read the Gospels. I, I-, I took a geometry class, so I feel like I'm very well qualified to say this. So there, we can read the Gospels horiz- uh, <laughs> <laughs> vertically and horizontally. I, 
I yield the remaining of my time. (laughs) So when we're reading the Gospels vertically, we're just reading the individual Gospels. There's no way to come back from that. (laughs) We're reading just that individual Gospel and not concerned with Matthew. We're not concerned with Luke. We're only concerned with Mark. When we're reading the Gospels horizontally, then we are reading that gospel in comparison to the other gospels. And so this can be very beneficial to us in the sense that we can see where the specific gospel we are looking at, where their emphases are. So if you look at Peter's confession of Jesus in Mark 8 in comparison with Matthew 16, in Mark 8, it just says that Peter says, you are the Christ, period, full stop. In Matthew, it says that Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Matthew includes that term, Son of God, and Mark doesn't. Why? I think it's because, like we were talking about earlier, Mark wants to preserve humans confessing Jesus as the Son of God until the end at the centurion. So he's kind of like airbrushed that sentence out, or that line out of um, Peter's, Peter's words to keep that emphasis in there. So comparing the Gospels to one another is very helpful. But what we don't want to do is try to create a fifth Gospel of combining all the different things that the Gospels tell into one story. We want to pay attention to what that specific Gospel says. Okay, let's move on. Okay, now, uh, prophecy. We'll talk about prophecy. Now, prophecy, we're thinking here primarily of Old Testament prophecy here. And um, when we're thinking of prophecy as a genre, we think mostly about foretelling. It's telling us something about the future. And there is elements that it does talk about the future and telling us about things that, from their perspective, that have yet to happen. But most of the time, prophecy is about foretelling. The prophet's telling stories. Uh, Israel, communicating to Israel what God wants them to hear at that time. There's also lots of poetry in uh, prophecy as well. And the main emphasis of prophecy in the Old Testament that the prophets were, were there to do, they saw that Israel sinned and they were seeking to bring them back into God's covenant. You broke the covenant, repent. So this is the kind of basic prophetic message. You've broken the covenant, you'd better repent. Okay, so you're not going to repent? Judgment's going to be coming. Is this what you want? Like, so you look at Isaiah, you look at Jeremiah, and he just he goes to the people. You're, you're, you've gone against the Lord, and he does this to bring them back. You're not going to do that? You're going to be judged for it. And then, this is what I love about Jeremiah, because he flip-flops between the judgment and then the future restoration. That it's not only judgment, it's not only condemnation and destruction. The Lord will bring Israel back. He will uh, give them a new covenant with his people. And this becomes the foundation uh, and stepping point for what Christ will do uh, in the end times. So that's a little bit about prophecy. I think sometimes we just focus only on what's going to happen in the future, whereas for a lot of times they're emphasizing on your Israel's faithfulness or lack of faithfulness in the coming judgment that was coming on them. Now, letters. We're almost there. This is the last one, and then we'll call it quits. Letters. Um, 
in uh, letters, they have a typical format of how letters were structured. You have a salutation, hi, how's it going? Thanksgiving, um, where the person would write a Thanksgiving, thank you so much, um, I'm so thankful for you as a person, and then the main body of the letter, and then a closing. What Paul does, in, and he follows this in a lot of, in, in all of his letters, or most of his letters, is that he includes uh, a Thanksgiving prayer for the church or individuals that he's writing to. And that sort of like telegraphs the concepts, the theology, the themes that he's going to be talking about in the main body of the letter. And it's also interesting to pay attention when an author removes one of these. Like in Galatians, Galatians is a hard-hitting book. There is no thanksgiving for the Galatians in there. <laughs> He's just like, you idiots. You're walking away from the Lord. And so he doesn't even like, take time to thank the Lord for them. Uh, he just gets right into the main body. And so when we're reading the letter, it's so easy for us to, as we're reading um, a letter uh, in the New Testament, and we just get into like um, little sections, like one verse or several verses or just one chapter, and we just, we're really good at like mining the, the, the letters, right? So we spend like three years studying the book of Romans, um, which is great, but like these are meant to be read very quickly, very shortly. And so we can lose kind of that overall thrust of the main emphasis of the letter. So some things that we just need to keep in mind here, and I think this is the last slide, so uh, we're almost there. Um, of things we need to pay attention to as we read letters and I think is difficult for us that I think we don't give enough credit for sometimes as we're reading the letters is the occasion. What is the occasion of this letter? When Paul wrote these letters, he was not writing a theology book. He chose a specific genre of a letter to write to a specific person, group, uh, church, churches, uh, what have you. He's not writing a theology book textbook. So he's not giving you everything about that topic. He's giving you enough to meet their need. So when we're thinking of a letter, we have to pay attention to what clues do we have in this text of what is this church going through? What is this person going through? What do they need? What is the author seeking to address that is bringing um, Paul to write this specific letter? And then it's also important for us to remember here that it's not, that these are not to us, but they are for us, to use John, John Walton's term. Um, and I, like, we're reading other people's mail, which is kind of fun to, to, to think about, even though it might be a felony today. Um, but, like, it, 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 these are not written specifically to JC in 21st century America. They are written to the church in Corinth in the first century. So we have to tend to that first, but they're still, they do still speak for me and for us. Um, along with this, we have to pay attention to the culture. How does Paul's culture his, uh, influence his writing and his meaning? What sort of like rhetoric does he use? Like, you have to pay attention to that. Like when Paul talks to the Corinthians and he says, oh, you are just so wise. Like he's not giving them a compliment. He's being ironic. He's going like, oh, this is where you got to use your like uh, sarcastic voice. Oh, Aren't you wise? Like that. Like if if we don't pay attention to how he shapes the his his rhetoric and what he's trying to say, you can go like, oh, he's calling them wise. I guess they are wise, and he's stupid. Nope, that's not what Paul's saying. He's he's chiding them. He's he's sticking it to them. And then also um, of how people would actually 
write these letters, um, we think of writing as very individual. I'm sitting down to write this letter. Um, but usually there was many people involved in the writing of a letter. And we see this in, in Paul's letters, like in First and Second Thessalonians. He lists, it's not just Paul who writes it, it's Timothy and uh, Silas are, are listed as authors. Um, and so this sometimes affects uh, the themes as well as the overall style and composition um, of these as well. And also that these are um, being read in this church. Like when we think of the letters, it's easy for us to read them as just individual documents for me or for that individual. But these were, most people could not read in the ancient world. So they would have to be read publicly in the church. So it has more of a communal nature than just an individual uh, single-sourced letter. And then also we have to think about application of how do we apply these letters. And we too are members of the church and um, these are written, again, not to us but for us. So we can think that everything that is said in these letters are for us uh, Christians as well because we're Christians. It's not Israel. It's not in a different dispensation. It's in this time as well. But we do want to be careful of what is for them, what is Paul calling or James calling them to do, and is that the same thing that is for us? So um, what is for them? It's just for their time, their cultural, their culture, and what is for us, what is transcultural, which is for all people in all times, no matter where they are. So um, that's it. So um, we'll close here, and I, I just I, I hope that is maybe uh, helpful in thinking about how can we best read Scripture, Ta- paying greater attention to the genres, the forms, um, and not reading Scripture in a, in a flat way. And the, the more we can be sensitive to those different styles, it will in tune our expectations for Scripture and to help us to be better readers of God's Word. All right, thank you so much. Let me uh, just close in prayer. Father, um, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have such great uh, access um, to your word, that we can read it, um, that we have so many copies of it. We pray that you'd help us to be better readers of your word. And uh, we pray that we would know more about you, that we would uh, just hear your voice speak to us. And we pray that we would be faithful followers of your word. Father, we, we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name.